We have learned how the prison system works and how it profits off of those incarcerated within its walls. Now it's time to hear a firsthand account. Johnny Perez is the director of U.S. prison programs for the National Religious Campaign Against Torture. He shared with us how his 13 years inside prison walls led him to the person he is today and why he does the work that he does. How did you get involved in this work? So I got involved in this work through two ways. Was through my direct experience of incarceration. And, and what I mean by that is that after I was released, I took on a job at the Urban Justice Center, which is a nonprofit civil legal services firm that provides legal services for people who just can't afford it. And I got a job there working reentry with people who have mental health concerns and also folks who had um, histories of incarceration. And there they had a campaign going to end the use of solitary confinement. And uh, the staff found out that I had served time in solitary because I said it right in the interview. <laughs> and they asked me to share my experience one day. And I fell into that mode as far as the way I was able to convey the experience, having facilitated classes inside and having been public speaking before. So I did that work for three and a half years where I helped people get their SSI, get their food stamps, get their housing, advocate for their landlords or against their landlords, parole, court them to court sometimes. And then I did that for three and a half years. And then after that, I moved into this role, which is a more policy oriented role where I'm more um, engaged on a policy level, engaging governors directly, engaging legislators directly, looking to change the laws in these different states. And if you're comfortable sharing, can you talk a little bit about your time incarcerated? Yeah, so there's a lot. So let me... You can tell um, as much as you want, as little as yeah. you want, whatever you're comfortable with. Yeah, yeah. I'll say, because I'll keep the prison industry topic in mind. I'll say, I so, guess with maybe how did you end up in there? Yeah. So, yeah. So my first, so my first interaction with the legal system was at the age of 11 years old, just stealing candy out the store. This, I remember the store owner literally grabbed me, called the cops, and I spent about four days in a precinct for stealing the Snicker bar. I think those were my early forays of having engagement with the legal system. And after that, I think after those, in those young formative years from like 11 to 15, I had a lot of interactions with police officers for, yeah, some of the things were, you know, like crimes per se, right? Like I was stealing out the store or I'm hanging out outside or let's say drinking publicly. But what felt more like on the harassment side, and what I mean by that is that I would have so many small interactions with police officers and that later on as an adult, I would almost become like desensitized and it really shaped the way that I would think about the system. And I say that as a background because is when I was 16 years old, I was, that was the first time that I was like really arrested and really went to jail. I went to Rikers mm -hmm. Island jail in New York City. Rikers Island is a prison on New York City's East River. It's one of the largest correctional institutions in the world and also one of the most controversial. In fact, Mayor Bill de Blasio announced in 2017 his plans to shut down Rikers Island within 10 years. And in October 2019, the New York City Council voted to close it down by 2026. So for the people, if you've never been to Rikers Island, uh, you would be, you go through a number of different emotions. One, you would just go through complete like shock in the sense that there's, it's a large institution. There's nine different buildings on the island. So there's nine different smaller jails. There used to be more, but they've been closing one little by little. 
And it actually operates like a prison. And as we know, you know, prison is where you go after you get sentenced and jails where you're held before you have your day in court. And when you go there, the place is really rampant with violence. And I was there as a 16-year-old. And the minute that I walked in, I literally got into a fight the same day. Now, what, as a 16-year-old, you are... You're still in a place where you're trying to find yourself. You're trying to find out who you are. You are still either going through puberty, trying to get out of puberty. There are a lot of things that you don't understand about the world. But prison and jail forces you to grow up really fast. So at 16 years old, I had to decide really fast how I was going to survive an unknown environment to me. Although I felt already prepared for it, having been already to group homes and having been to like through the, like through the juvenile system as a kid. In the first minute that I got there, the police officer said, excuse me, the correction officer said, you're going to the chop shop. And I'm like, what does it mean, the chop shop? You go in, they put you in this large area, which is one large cell called the bullpen. There's about 30 to, 30 to 40 men uh, standing in there. Some people haven't slept for days. Some folks haven't showered for days. The toilet doesn't work. The sink might only spit out a little bit of water. There's one phone. And the correction officer said, hey, J- Johnny Perez calls me up. And he says, you're going to the chop shop. And I'm like, the chop shop? What do you mean, the chop shop? He's, he's, that's the place where we put most of our, like, our dangerous folks are. This is where they call it the chop shop because it's most of where, where we put people who have committing slashings, et cetera. And I don't, know, I don't know what was more shocking to me. I don't know if it was the fact that there's a place called the chop shop that I'm going to or the fact that the person who is supposed to be looking after my protection, the correction officer, is telling me this information about where I'm going. And he's telling me in a way in which he's aware of the dangers that are there. And I get to the housing area. And as soon as I get in, this is older kid, because at the time, 16 year olds were still being treated as adults. So they were being sent to adult jails like Rikers Island. So you have this big 17 year old who looks more like he's 40. And you have myself who's 16, but weighing about 130, 30 pounds. And he said, hey, you can't use the phone unless you're gang affiliated. And I wasn't gang affiliated. Neither did I want to be. And in that moment, I hit him. I hit him out of fear. I hit him out of this unwritten code that says if you show any signs of weakness, you will be a victim for the rest of your time that's there. And out of a sense of also not feeling protected by the larger system, which in this case was correction officers. And that's when I first ended up in solitary the first time. Um, 16 years old, as a kid, 60 days. Rikers Island wasn't always a correctional facility for just adults. Up until 2018, teenagers were imprisoned there as well, even if they were just awaiting trial and hadn't actually been found guilty of a crime. One of the most notable cases is that of Khalif Browder, who was accused of stealing a backpack when he was 16 years old. Because his family couldn't afford his $3,000 bail, he ended up being imprisoned at Rikers Island without a trial or conviction for three years. Two of those years were spent in solitary confinement. Remember, he wasn't even an adult. Although his case was later dismissed, Browder eventually died via suicide only months after his release. I ended up doing an entire year in Rikers Island. I served my time there, I got eight months for, uh, excuse me, 10 months for gun possession. And for listeners who are wondering what is a, why is a 16-year-old carrying around a gun, it's because I, I come from a neighborhood in a community where 
where we've been forced to protect ourselves, where we can't trust police officers, where you call the police officer and it, for, for help, but they end up arresting you or, God forbid, even killing you. And we've seen those interactions. I've been extorted by police officers, that kind of thing. It was not uncommon to find people to find ways to protect themselves and not relay on whatever the society put in place to protect us. And I got arrested. Ten months later, I come out and I tell you, I think about this a lot in a sense that the time that I spent in Rikers Island, I was I spent it trying to think about a different way to not get caught carrying a gun. Not the fact that I didn't need to carry a gun or that it was even wrong to carry a gun. I didn't walk away with that impression. I just walked away with the feeling of I just have to find a different way to protect myself or something to that effect. But I continued to break the law. And then at 21, I got arrested for robbery in the first degree. And first degree means that I had a weapon and that the person who I harmed had reasonable belief, reasonable belief that I would harm them. And that's irrelevant of whether the gun was loaded or not, which it wasn't. And on the surface, what seems to be a, a violent crime or this person's antisocial, I for myself had to understand that was really a reaction to poverty and, and a reaction to a lot of societal factors that were in place before I came into, even into the world, but yet I decided to apply a criminal solution to poverty. Joe Schmo down the block, if he's gonna get evicted and has a kid on the way and needs money, whatever, he'll go and get on food stamps or find some other social support and a decision to, to apply criminal solutions. Later on, I would understand that a lot of our system does place the emphasis on the individual while also ignoring the environmental factors that influence this person's decision. So while at the same time I know that it's wrong, and, and people do break the law, right? And we, we look at what this person did. The court as a whole does not make room to look at what environmental factors played into this decision. So when I have clients who are released in the winter with no coat and they end up stealing coats to stay warm, I'm angry in court that the judge never asked why was this person released without a coat? In addition to saying, I can see why this person did, should not have stolen a coat, mm -hmm. but why was this person in custody for so long and not released without a coat, which is a larger question, right? Or that kind of thing. And yeah, 21 years old, 15 years. My first offer was 25 years. I, I couldn't understand why I was being offered so much time. You know, 25 years in prison is a long time. No one was physically hurt. Again, like I said, the gun wasn't loaded. There were things about it that I'm like... I've seen people do worse in my eyes that had gotten more time, including including being involved in situations where people lost their lives and only got about eight years. I've seen folks get arrested for sex offenses where a lot of harm has been done and only get months. So I couldn't understand why I was getting 25 years. And the reason for that was because I had already a long history of having come in contact with the system. So the sentencing guidelines started a little bit higher for me, especially having already had a felony for gun possession. While I was incarcerated, the first five years we re were really difficult in the sense that I'm 21 years old trying to find myself, trying to find my way in a world in which it's completely backwards and upside down. It's all men. There's no women. <laughs> there's no money. There's, there's no like free market, if you will. There's a culture that I now have to understand very quickly, very fast. There are norms that I have to understand very fast, like not looking in someone's eyes, not touching anyone. If someone touches you to also respond violently, because if you don't, then this is the way that your time is going to look for the next 15 years. And also that correction officers can't protect you. Again, that was again reiterated throughout my entire sentence is that I remember Clinton Correctional Facility when I was waiting to receive my mattress and, there was, and we were all in line and a person came up behind me and he ran up 
behind everyone, past the line, all the way up to the front of the line where the correction officer was sitting. And he said, officer, I got these guys in my cell right now. They're taking my commissary. They're taking my TV because that was a facility where you can have TVs. And the officer said, get away from my cell. No, excuse me, get, get away. Sorry. It's okay. Okay. Now I heard me. I was in my head. <laughs> and the officer says, get away from my desk. I'm going to go get a knife like everyone else. I'm 21 years old, no mustache yet, standing there handcuffed, waiting to get my mattress. Just got to this facility, just hours. And the first thing that I hear is a question officer tell another person who's in obvious distress, go get a knife like everyone else. So two things. One, I can die in here because this is what kind of environment I'm stepping in. Two, I better get a knife like everyone else. Because <laughs> obviously, it's better to have one than to not have one. Needless to say, I ended up in solitary after that. I ended up, I did three and I did a total of three years in solitary for cannabis consumption. And, you know, cannabis while you were um, inside? Yes, while I was incarcerated. Okay. Yeah. And if they test your urine and if you test positive for any substance, you end up in solitary confinement. The first time I landed there was for 30 days. The second time was for 90 days. The third time was for a year. And wow. then. And then they test you. They used to just come test me twice a month. And I'll, let me pause there. It says something about our system, right? Because today, like my, my psychologist, like I have a diagnosis for trauma, but that is a direct result of my experience in, in, in prison, specifically my experience with solitary. So you get put in solitary for smoking pot and then solitary damages you enough to where you experience trauma and PTSD, and then you get released. And then society says, hey, you have PTSD and trauma as a result of your experience. Would you like to try cannabis therapy? So me as an individual, I'm like, you got to be <laughs> this kid. Like, you can't be serious. But the system is so backwards is that it doesn't, it doesn't do what it's supposed to do. So if we have a correctional system that is supposed to correct behavior, we have to ensure that same system does not exasperate that very behavior in which is trying to change. So the biggest thing that corrections fools itself, the biggest lie that correction tells itself is that the more we punish you, the more that's going to make you want to change. Not knowing that punishment in itself exasperates the same behavior. So we get into this cyclical behavior where I'm reacting to my environment. You punish me, damage me. Now I come out and I react even worse because of the damage. And then you turn around and continue to punish me. So we have this cyclical process that really doesn't, doesn't work and hasn't worked. And the same way that society responds to public health problems with incarceration, homelessness, mental health concerns, poverty, it's the same way inside of prison where if you test positive for drugs, you're going to get punished. You're going to be put in solitary. If, you know, if you don't have money, you, you are definitely are going to have your, your wages, your already small prison wages garnished to pay any victim's fees or to use to pay um, a misbehavior reports. Because every time that you're written up, they cost $5. And when I'm getting $7 every two weeks, one misbehavior report just wiped me out for the next two weeks. So there's a lot of that. I'll say eventually I discovered education for the wrong reason. I ended up engaging in a lot of prison programs, specifically college, because I wanted to get out of, out of prison earlier and maybe meet my time in parole. Not because I thought that I could be a doctor or do policy work one day, 
just because I knew that if I'm in this program, I'm more likely to finish, to come home early. But while I was there, education literally blew my entire perspective open and my, my disposition of the world and, and really deepened my understanding of myself, others, and my place in the world and the way that the world functions. It's unfortunate that I had to discover education while I was incarcerated or during incarceration. So by no means that incarceration had the impact on me. It was education. It just so happened that I discovered it while there. And you talked, you mentioned it, how you were in solitary several times. What is it, what exactly is it like in solitary? You, you said that you had a book with you. So that means that you were able to do at least something in there. I guess paint, paint the picture for us. Yeah, so if you close your eyes, you can think about it as a small spot. If you, yeah, if you close your eyes for a second and you reach out both hands, right? Imagine that both of your hands can touch both walls of the room. That's how small it is. The cell is as a little bit longer than your bed, except that I'm six feet tall. So when I stretch my legs out, I can touch the edge of the bed. So a lot of times I used to sleep with my knees tucked into my chest. The room is very small, very quiet, very hot in the summer, very cold in the winter. It gets so hot that the walls start to sweat at times. During the day, sometimes it gets so noisy, listening to the yells and sounds and of other people who are locked inside of their cells that it's really hard to sleep. Psychologically, you try to escape because you, there's really nothing to do. And one way to escape is just to sleep all day. So you sleep all day, but the problem with sleeping all day is that you're up all night you have little uh, property inside of the cell. You have, you're allowed to have two books a week. Sometimes the library officer passes by. Sometimes he or she does not pass. You're allowed to have 10 pieces of mail with you. And then you're allowed to receive mail every day. You're allowed to have five magazines and uh, you're allowed to have 10 pictures. You're allowed to have uh, only one set of clothing um, you're only allowed to wear one layer of clothing at a time. So I can only have underwears and my uniform. I can't wear an extra sweater, per se, on top of a layer if, if I get too cold. The toilet is right next to the bed. So when you lay down, the toilet is going to be as close to you in the bed. There are times when I would put my head the other way. But because correctional officers have to see you when they walk by to make sure that you didn't kill yourself, uh, commit suicide or or harm yourself in any way, you have to lay in the bed in a way in which they can see you. And that a lot of times is your head directly adjacent to the toilet. If you have a good cell, the toilet will flush. If you have a bad cell, the toilet won't flush. If you need it fixed, it can take days for that toilet to get fixed. You get one roll of toilet tissue per week. You learn to save it. If you run out, you have to get creative about how you're going to replace that toilet paper. And if you have excessive property in your cell, for example, if you try to save food or you collect soap, if you collect toilet paper, you can receive a misbehavior report for that. And that in turn leads to more time in solitary. The first meal is at seven o'clock in the morning. The second meal is at 12 o'clock in the afternoon, with the last meal being about four or five o'clock in the afternoon. So you go over 14 hours without eating again. So you have to be mindful about how much you exercise. You have to be mindful about how much you talk. You have to be mindful about how much energy you use because you're not you're going to be famished. I went in weighing 175 and went out uh, weighing about 155 after doing 10 months straight in um in solitary. I'll say this last thing that there's psychologically when you're by yourself you want to we have this need to hear a human voice and to touch people. 
there's been studies that show that if you leave a child unattended, like without human touch, they actually just can't survive. Flowers actually the same way too. You know, this this study with music and you know, how we how this ecosystem of how we're all connected. And in solitary, the most dehumanizing pieces are the fact that you have little to no meaningful human interactions. The only person that I spoke to was the same person, the officer that brought me my food three times a day or that walked by my cell to ensure that I didn't commit suicide. But when this one person doesn't talk to you, when this one person doesn't even look at you sometimes for days or weeks at a time, it does chip at you a little bit. When you don't have nobody to talk to, you'll find that you'll end up talking to yourself. You'll talk loud. It starts off maybe singing a song out loud or, you know, maybe thinking aloud. But there you I wasn't I would get into full blown conversations with myself. Now, looking from the outside in, someone would say, wow, this person's losing it. They're they're going crazy. Look at them. This is why they're in there. But another analysis would say it's not that this person's in there because he's acting like that. He's acting like that because he's in there. And it's a different perspective because it allows people to understand that if you were locked in a cell for eight months without nobody to talk to and you can only see about six feet in front of you, hence why I still wear glasses to this day, <laughs> after a while, yeah, you're not gonna you're not gonna act normal because this is not a normal environment. So prison forces you to act normal in a completely unnormal environment. And and that is the cruel joke of the architects of incarceration. It's like with kids, we hold 15-year-olds to the same standards we hold adults when we know they have a larger propensity for risk and they don't think straight. I don't I know I didn't think straight when I was 15 years old. I, I thought that I did, but we treat them the same. So in, in solitary, because we still put kids in solitary, we put women who are expecting in solitary. We shackle women who are giving birth inside of these systems. And we have to ask the question is, is this accomplishing what we want? And there's a fine line between accountability and punishment. And for those who think that, well, to some people, accountability looks like punishment. Just know that the the outcome of punishment is not never actually gets us to whatever we, we want the goal to be. Even when you ask crime survivors about what they would want to see happen, overwhelming majority of crime survivors actually did not respond with incarceration. They responded with what is now you know known as like restorative justice practices that are centered on accountability. And that also leads to true change, not change that is fleeting in a sense. Yeah. So what it, I'm trying to think which question to go with next. Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't have them in front of me. Let me bring them up. So you mentioned about earlier on, you said about how if you have a minor infraction, it'll cost you $5 and maybe you make $7 over two weeks. So what happened? How does it work when you have some sort of income while you're incarcerated? What can that be used towards? Does that transfer to once you're finally released, you get that money? Yeah, good point. Yeah, I'll set the because I remember one of your questions was around the 13th Amendment. Yeah. So the 13th Amendment had supposedly outlawed slavery, except for people with criminal convictions. Mm-hmm. So we live in a country that where the Constitution says that slavery can exist if you are under these conditions, which is really the essence of our 13th Amendment. And what that does is that it, it allows for um, these institutions of incarceration, both public and private, right, to use prison labor to for almost nothing. 
throughout my incarceration, there were times on the low end when I was paid about 13 cents an hour and on the high end being paid about 65 cents an hour. I don't think I ever made more than 65 cents an hour throughout 13 years of my, of my incarceration. The 13th Amendment abolished slavery, except for those convicted of a crime. Because of that, people in prison can legally work for next to nothing, no matter what kind of labor is being performed. That's across nine different prisons in New York State. Now, as a policy person, this is also similar in other states. Now, I visit prisons and tour prisons, and I talk to people in other country, in other states, and they also echo these slave wages. And, you know, while you're incarcerated, you're not only forced to work for what's, what many would argue are slave wages, but you also don't get a lot of the things that we have just come to understand are like standard in society as it comes to a job. We come to expect that if you're sick, you expect to call in and say, hey, I can't work today because I don't feel well. People in prison can't do that. In fact, people in prison who refuse to go to work can actually be placed in solitary, can get misbehavior reports to have their to have their 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 privileges taken away. Whether that looks like phone calls where you can't talk to your family on their birthday, uh, recreation, having access to commissary, which is very critical when the last meal is at four o'clock every day and the next meal is at seven o'clock. You're also not allowed to take bereavement time, vacation time. You're not allowed to take any of that. Now, there are times when a question officer, just because of their relationship, may say, hey, I know you're going through something. Go ahead and take the day off. But there is no policy that says, hey, there's this set amount of time away for these people to take time off during their employment here. Because we're not seen as employees and it's almost seen as a duty of what it takes to be incarcerated. Like you have to do this. You have to take a program. In fact, they don't even call it a job. They call it a program. And regardless of the program that you have, you will be paid. Although some prisons and institutions have more people than they have opportunities for people to work. And this is important because if I have 15 years to do, Regardless of whether I'm getting paid seven cents or 35 cents, I want to do something with my time and I can't just sit. I'm just going to sit at myself for 13 years. Mm -hmm. You know, so some jobs include janitorial services, for example. And that means they may not even clean it all the way up. That's like sweeping and mopping the tear. They five out five dollars every two weeks or something like that. Those funds you can then use to either spend in commissary. You can order from an outside catalog if your facility allows it to. There were times when... In Kaksaki Correctional Facility, it took me a year to save $1,000. And then in Christmas, I sent that to my daughter. I bought her a bike and some other things and her daughter's and my, and my daughter's mother at the time. But it took me a year to save $1,000. And that's also with spending time, spending money on my cell phone commissary and things like that. You're allowed to take home whatever you have in your account. But the truth is, because many people who are incarcerated, many of the folks who are held inside of these spaces, many come from poor backgrounds. Many folks come from, they lack an education and mental health concerns. 40% of prison populations have mental health concerns. And I would argue you shouldn't even be there in the first place. So people are not being released with tons of money. People are being released with, on average, $40, right? The state in New York does garnish your wages throughout the entire time that you're there until it adds up to $40. And that is money that you're guaranteed to have. But that is not money that the state gives you. That is money that you yourself earned. So for correctional officials that say, hey, we give them $40. No, we help them save $40 by garnishing their wages. Because again, when you're when you have next to nothing and you have all this time to do, I don't, ha I don't have, an, I don't make enough money to save anything. 
unless it's already taken before it even gets in my hands. And then most people are released with that as a minimum into a society. For me, it was after 13 years, you go back into a society, in this case, 42nd Street. And if people have never been to 42nd Street, a lot of lights, cameras, action, the cacophony of different languages. Yes, it's Manhattan. Yeah, Manhattan Times Square, 42nd Street, which is sensory overload for someone who's coming from a place that is lacking in sensory stimulation, right? In prison, Mm -hmm. everything is gray, drab colors. In Times Square in New York, everything is bright. The neon greens, the oranges, the blues, colors that have not really seen in person in years because they're just not allowed in prison. No smells that I had not smelled in years, sounds that I had not heard in years, specifically the sounds of a child's laughter really sticks out to me. Sirens, things like that stick out to me. But you're taken from that environment, placed right then in the middle of this sensory overloading environment, Times Square in New York. And society says, hey, you have to figure out how to navigate this society that has changed so much now. There's no tokens anymore. Before I went in, there were tokens that you put in, these coins that you use to take the subway, but now they have these cars that mirror that they're like metro cards. So how do you use that? Everyone has a cell phone. How do I use a touchscreen phone? When I was when I went away, they were not touchscreen. We had flip phones. How do I use that? How do I turn it on? But yeah, why is everybody walking around talking to themselves? And then you find out, oh, this is thing called Bluetooth, and people may just <laughs> have it on one side and they may look like they're talking to themselves but they're not and trying to adapt to all of these things. And some people make it, some people don't. I've had clients. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, what year was it that you uh, were released? I was released in 2013, September 19th, 2013. What what were like the big social media things, what the culture was like at the time? Yes. Yeah. So in 2013, I'll tell you some of the most shocking things in my reentry or things that really stuck out for me was just really adapting to everyday life. I don't know, it's, I gotta keep, I gotta remember that I'm like, this is for like a, the podcast piece and give you these tidbits <laughs> that you can like later on edit. There were some challenges in my reentry, and I've only been home for six years. And although I've excelled past, I've excelled differently than a lot of my peers, I still struggle with a lot. But the first, first out, of course, I struggled with relationships with women I haven't been in a relationship for years in prison, although there's there are there are officers who are women. You learn not to talk to them. You learn not to even look at them only because there's you can get sent to like literally you can get sent to solitary for what's called reckless eyeballing. And that is if you look at a woman too long and that's it's like visual harassment. And hey, I just learned not to look. But what happens is. What happens when you do this for years, right? When you're used to walking and not acknowledging and et cetera. And then how do I now say, hey, how you doing? My name is Johnny. I love to take you out for ice cream or something. I don't know. So dating was particularly challenging. Although it's not challenging now. I'm engaged, have a child. We're about to get married. It's amazing. Yeah, (laughs) thank you. (laughs) You know, yeah, so that's, but there was a learning curve there. And there's, there's education where I started my education while I was in prison, but I said, I really want to finish my education because I have a criminal record. And unless I find something to equalize that, people are just not going to respect me in society. I'm not just going to, I'm not going to be able to survive in society. Hence, most of my peers, they have PhDs, master's degrees there. And I love it, but I did need that equalizer and I wanted to finish my degree. So I found myself in St. Francis College who, thanks to the post-prison program, allowed me to complete a private education at this institution right after my incarceration. 
But that's, it wasn't always easy, right? Here it is, I'm 34 years old at the time, sitting next to a brilliant 18-year-old who's typing 10 miles a minute. And I don't even know how to type. I know how to two-finger peck. Just trying to adapt to academic life, trying to adapt to spaces in a world where it's just architecturally different. I thought there was a park there, now it's a building. Or I thought there was a building there, now there's a park. Going back to the places that I hung out as a kid and seeing how much it changed. Going back to the place where I was arrested, which if I could do it again, I w the first time that I would go back, it would not be with cameras. <laughs> I got really overwhelmed. Assimilating back into society isn't easy, especially if the system doesn't seem to want to let you move on. This happened to Marcus Jarvis, who is the Outreach and Communications Associate for the Juvenile Law Center. Yeah, so I was certified as an adult for a drug charge in Lackawanna County, where I spent a year in the county prison there. And upon my release, I was released and I was transferred back to Philadelphia and I served out my probation. I paid what I thought was the amount of money that I had to pay and I was going about my life. And just one day I was stopped on the street, just on some stop and frisk type of stuff where the cops had just stopped me for being black and walking down the street, basically. And they ran my name and they said I had a warrant and he didn't know what the warrant was for, so they was going to have to take me in. So... They brought me in for the warrant. I had the video court and the video court person they didn't tell me. I didn't go in front of the video court, but when they had the video court, then they said that the warrant was for Lackawanna County. So they had to take me to Lack Lackawanna. They had to see if Lackawanna County was going to come and get me. They had 72 hours. If they didn't come and get me, I would be released and I would get a date. So I was hoping, you know, that I would get, they just wouldn't come and get me. Lackawanna County came and got me the next morning. So these two uh, officers from Lackawanna County drove to Philadelphia. I was handcuffed, shackled, placed in the back of a cop car, driven for three hours in the back of a cop car to Lackawanna County, where I was then processed, brought into the Lackawanna County prison. And I served like a few days in the Lackawanna County prison. And I, when they brought me to court, the person at court, they, the judge was like, it was like really seemed really rigged. They, he had an attitude about like me not paying. Basically, if you don't pay this money. And this is when I found out that this is, was all about money. And when I got to the courtroom and this all at the same time, I was finding out like, OK, you're saying I owe this money. And he's saying you owe, I think it was like eleven hundred dollars. And if you don't have anybody in the courtroom to pay, do you have anybody in the courtroom to pay it off or can you pay it off now? And I said, no, they said, oh, if you can't pay it now, you either have to spend a year in prison or I think it was six months to a year in prison. Sorry about that. Can you start, uh, start again when you said, so the judge said that if you can't pay this, then? Yeah, so the judge said that if you can't pay this amount of money, if you can't pay this $1,100 today, or if there's no one in the courtroom to pay this money in the courtroom today, which was like a joke because the courtroom was dead empty. So it was like, he was being like condescending in a sense. Clearly there was nobody there to pay for anybody who had court because it was an empty courtroom. I've been to courtrooms where there's people in it sitting in the pews and what the seats, there was nobody in the courtroom. So he's saying like, if there's nobody here that can, if you can't pay and there's nobody here who can pay it for you, you either have to spend that six months or up to a year until you can have somebody uh, pay it, someone else pay it, or you can work 
in this recycling program for 21 days. And it was like, when he said that, it was just, okay, this is what she wanted me to do, whatever. So it just seemed, okay, I would either have to do six months to a year or do this recycling program to take off the, to pay off the fine. So I was brought to this place and I'm told this number of time that I can't pay and there's no getting on a payment plan or nothing like that. And I had to work in this. So I agreed to do the program and I was like forced to work into the, work in this recycling uh, plant. And it was crazy because I just had, you know, just gotten hired at the Eagle Stadium and I was supposed to be working. And I had I worked with Juvenile Law Center at the time and I had a job. I had multiple jobs and I had people that would be able to say that I worked with them. But I wasn't even allowed, you know, that opportunity to say me having two jobs and that wasn't enough. It wasn't like. It was just, you had to get into work in this recycling program. I was forced to work in that. And it was just like a regular place inside the community where if you didn't know, if you didn't know what it was, you wouldn't know that everybody that was getting off of this bus, because we weren't handcuffed and shackled. We got off the bus and just went into the building. You might just think it was a group of people, just a regular people. You wouldn't even probably know it was prisoners that were working in this recycling plant. How old were you when you were arrested for these outstanding fines? I believe I was 20. Okay. And did you know that you had these fines to pay? No. Forgot about it or nobody I told you? No idea about no type of court causing the fine because the case was in Lackawanna County. And when I was released, I never lived in Lackawanna County in the first place. So when I was released from that jail, I didn't even have the teacher from like one of the staff members of the prison paid for my ticket back to Philadelphia. So I had, when I left the jail and I got out that day, I didn't have any money on my books. I no, I had $22 in my books, but the ticket back to Philly was like $37. So I knew you had to pay money to cash the money order. So I didn't have enough money. So I had walked to the bus station after I got out and I was just going to ask them to like get on a bus or whatever, show them my stuff. And it was a staff member from the jail who had uh, bought a ticket for me and gave me $40. And, and that was how I got, it wasn't from... Lackawanna County, I didn't have any address. So once I went back and my case was transferred to Philadelphia, I had never, you know, received any, aside from me probably changing addresses, I know I lived at the address that was on my ID and I had never received any type of mail or any type of notification from like my probation officer or anybody stating that I owed some type of, I owed any money. So I was never under the impression that I owed any money. And even what they say the court costs and fines were for me being in Lackawanna County Prison. Like that's what I owed eleven hundred dollars in court costs and fines for me being in the prison. I never knew that you owed money for being in jail. I never knew that was part of prison at all. That you would owe money for every day that you was in jail. Like I thought that it was bad enough that they were paying me like a couple cent an hour. Like I had a job in there, and it was like they were only paying you a few cent an hour in the first place. So it was like, if we owe, if I owed money, then y'all could have just kept it or something. I didn't, I never knew that I was incurring fees every day for my entire time I was there. And it, it almost seems even when you're out of the, the incarceration system, it's like they still find ways to make money off of you. Yeah, really well. They have a lot of different... It's set up really well for you to have to like continue to pay like the different fines and ways that they 
find a like my license was like somehow as a part of my case, my license was suspended. Like I had my I never had I, I wasn't driving. I was arrested inside of a house. It was I was arrested inside of a house somewhere. They had kicked in the door, raided the house. I had drugs in my pocket. They took me to jail. Somehow that led somehow within my case, it led to me, you know, having my license suspended. I don't know how that when I went to get my license, they told me that my driving privilege was suspended. It was part of my case and I had to pay a certain amount of money for that. And I don't know. It was just part of the case or part of one of those things. I didn't know that I didn't get no paper that said, oh, your license is going to be suspended. And I wasn't even driving, but that was one of the things that came along with my case. I don't, I never had any piece of paper or no paperwork from me getting sentenced that day, but I would have loved to see what, does it say something somewhere like you're going to have these fines imposed or you're not going to, your driving privilege is going to be taken or these type of things. Because then I would have knew when I got out that I would have had to do these things. Like I got my GED when I was 16. Like I thought I was doing, I was taking care of the things that I had to take care of. I started college when I was 17, when I had gotten out. But it was just like, things like that was like, I, I never went. And that was before I was supposed to be going back and starting another semester of school. I was supposed to be starting another semester of school and I was supposed to be going, I was going to Montgomery County College, community college. And none of that stuff mattered in court when I was like trying to tell the person like I'm starting college, I have a job, I work for juvenile law center, like none of that stuff mattered. It was like, if you don't have money right now and you can't pay this fine, then you're gonna have to be in this recycling program. Like it wasn't about the fact that I had already had good things going in my life and it wasn't like I was just running from the fines or something like that. It was just like they had a plan they wanted and it didn't make any sense because it just seemed like they were spending so many resources to get something that wasn't like worth as much, like to take me to drive to Philadelphia, drive back with multiple, you're paying multiple people to drive to Philadelphia and drive back for hours, you're paying for gas and all of this stuff just for me owing a thousand dollars. Like, it didn't really make any sense. Like how many thousands of dollars did you spend in pursuit of forcing me to come and work for a thousand dollars? So is this part of, you know, a larger issue when it comes to court fees and fines? Because you said that your work with the JLC is part of it is the issues of fines and fees. Do you find this is happening with other uh, young people as well? Yes, it's very reminiscent of, and the problem with this is that my case was an adult case, so I was certified as an adult. The juvenile system is doing this exact same stuff to juveniles in the system. They're getting charged fines per day for there's certain states where youth were charged per day for them being in the system. And it varies per different states and different placements charge youth a different amount per day for every day that they're in the system. These type of fees are on top of many different other type of fees that aren't even just directly related to any type of restitution for what a person has done. It's just an, another fee that the government ends up spending money to try to collect 
And it's not even like once if they do receive the money that they sought out, the amount of money that they had to spend to send someone out or use resources to go and get the money just negates the you know positive effect that they would have gotten from getting any money in the first place. So do you know when it came at least to your fees and fines and all that, do you know specifically what they were, you know, charging for? Or did they say just say quarter appearance X amount of dollars? I'm just curious how they put a dollar symbol on these specific things. No, I'm actually I actually looked over my, my PAE docket not too long ago to try to see. But what is PAE document? So uh, PAE docket is a, I'm pretty sure every state has it. It's a, it's a resource that you can type a person's name and birthday and all of their cases stuff will come up and it's free. So if I had a friend or something and I couldn't, if I called him or something like that, just me personally, and I couldn't reach, I wouldn't get in contact with him. Sad to say, I would look, I might search their name up on the e-docket and see if they had gotten locked up or something like that. That's what my personal experience with it has been. But it's a resource for many, many different things like that. And it's actually like any person that you know, if you knew a person's name and birthday, you could type it in and their legal cases would come up because it's public information. Different websites like charge you for those things, but that is just a free resource that it's an app in the app store that I've known about for three years and I've just used it for really that and then like looking up, like my brothers, actually, like I have three brothers. And just in terms of trying to find people and stuff like that, it, it's, <laughs> and it's just been a thing I've always used ever since then. And it's always been a good resource. But I feel, I'm not sure if there's a, a version of that in like every other state because it's an AE docket, but I feel mm-hmm. like there would probably be because... And so for yours, you were able to see the specific things that you were being uh, fined for or no? No, it only shows the amount that you owe. It doesn't itemize what, so we pull it up on the docket. It only, it doesn't itemize. I was trying to personally see if they said what exactly they were charging me for. And I know that in the conversation, they did say that it was like the fees that you incurred per day. And I'm not exactly sure what it was. I just didn't see that itemize the itemization if it was just that per fees per day what that would consist of it was like some i'm not exactly sure what it was mm-hmm. but i know that it was just based on me being you know housed in the prison i had fees it wasn't because i feel like the stuff with my license seemed to be not not as related to the county jail aspect of it but it was like i owed this money to for being in the lackawanna county prison mm-hmm. That was it. And that was, I was 16 at the time when I was in the prison. So it was ridiculous. The entire thing was ridiculous in the sense of like when I initially had agreed to even go uh, to be certified as an adult, I didn't know that that's what was happening. But it was just like, you want this one to two or this four to eight. And it was like, what? <laughs> I know math. Let me do this. I'll take the one to two. <laughs> You know, you're going to have, there wasn't any further explanation of what that one to two came along with. And it seemed to come along with like this laundry list of things that, you know, I didn't know about. So it seems almost that the system doesn't want to let you go. It's just, there's this saying, I know it from the episode of The Sopranos, where they go, just when I think I'm out, they pull me right back in. And it, it almost seems that's the case, uh, at least for you. 
Yeah, and a lot of times, and it's, it, it does this with especially young people and their families where you'll have a person who's been, who has gotten out of this, out of a placement and they're brought back into the home. And then that builds a wall between the youth and their family because there's these, they're coming back to the home and they're already, a kid is a financial burden in the first place, but then you have the state place and these financial burdens on top of the things that you already have. And that places, but it makes people less likely to want to support their own kids and it leads them to have a, clashing of people within their own households because now the youth is being seen as this bill that you're placing on the back of somebody who's already trying to reintegrate into the community and they don't have a lot of resources because they've been out of the community for a certain amount of time and you're placing them back into their home along with a, a hefty bill the bills are usually really big and for different states they place the bill on the parent. So the, the bill will come in the parent's name and that's going to make a person feel a certain you know way within already trying to help somebody reintegrate back into life. And then you already are putting, you're, start, you're taking away from a person's ability to help somebody because you're placing this bill in front of that ability to help any money that you might have put towards a basketball camp or some resources that, for them to go spend some time to as opposed to them going out and trying to make money or they're trying to dig themselves out of this virtual hole that they feel like they're in. They could be doing normal, but it stops them from doing normal things in the community and feeling like they have a space to learn and do after school programs. It's all about, you know, trying to repay this debt. And that's what makes it so much more of a punitive action when it comes to youth because it's not supposed to be like that. It's supposed to be rehabilitative. The system is supposed to be rehabilitating young people but a lot of times like that these fines are very harsh punishments on youth and their entire families because they're the youth aren't the only ones that really deal with the fines a lot of times it comes in the parent's name but it's not even in the youth's name the bill will come to the parent and that's like a an enormous weight to place on somebody who's already dealing with the youth that's already having problems When it comes to mass incarceration, what comes to mind? Do you think of criminals, men behind bars, or maybe orange jumpsuits? Hopefully, Perez and Jarvis's stories reminded you that at the end of the day, these are still people. I read a lot about historical movements when I was incarcerated, not because I had an interest, to be honest, it was because I was the only thing I had to read. And mm -hmm. it stuck in the cell for a whole week. And all you got is that one book. And that book is 900 pages or 10 pages. That's what you'll read over and over again. So I read War and Peace like that. 908 pages twice. Oh, my God. But then I also read Victor Frankl's Mercer's Search for Meaning, which is like 96 pages, something like that, 98 pages. And he talked about World War II. And then I also read about a lot of different, you know, like movements, you know, women's movement, labor movement. And a lot of what we're seeing in, in his current administration is like some, we see these little remnants of some of those oppressive tactics that people in power were using at the time. And what's, what's really, what's most, I think similar to a lot of things that's happened over the last four years in his current administration mirrors a lot of things that happened during World War II. And what I mean by that is, and by, I by no means 
you may not actually want to put this in the thing, but only because I got a lot of backlash. Folks thought that I was comparing like black suffrage movement with like the Holocaust and the and the Jewish struggle, which mm-hmm. not trying to compare struggles here. Now, hey, like who was worse though? Yeah, no. yeah, no, but from the other side of how power can, if not checked, can be unruly in a sense. Mm-hmm. And from that lens, we've seen this current administration change things in this country that is really alarming to, to many of us, mm-hmm. uh, contrary to popular belief. It's not just black people that are you know angry about the way that things are going. There are a lot of folks who are not black who are also just angry about the way that it's going. It's not. It's just not reflective of the society that we we would like to live in, that we strive to live in, not reflective of our shared values. And it's not based on, and if this is not based on behavior, there's something different when, hey, Johnny, you put a gun to somebody. And, and there's a whole conversation there, but it's different when we treat people like this based on who they are, not what they've done. And when we start doing that, that is very dangerous. We hear it in the language, which I don't we're going to talk about language, how we dehumanize people using language. It's funny. I went back and I read this book in prison called um, Less Than Human, mm-hmm. right? How we demean, enslave and exterminate others by David Livingston Smith. And this was one of the books I read while I was incarcerated. But it gave me insight as to how. How do we dehumanize people? How do we get to a place where we're able to kill millions of people? And this author doesn't just use World War II. He also just talks about discovering America and Columbus and dispels that narrative and how Native peoples were were treated. And you really ask the question, what does it take? What do we need to do to really dehumanize someone? Or, Or no, what does it take for us to treat somebody as such? And then he talked about these stages about how we have to dehumanize them first. Because if we see them as human, then we can't, like our innate... God given won't let us treat other humans like that. So we have to almost view them as if they're less than human. And one way to see that is actually reflected in the language. And if you look at almost every movement in the last hundred years, you see this dehumanizing language. In World War II, yes, you heard the humanizing language that I don't want to repeat, but you also hear it now. And specifically to the criminal justice system, you hear this language around this person's not, he's a criminal, he's a murderer, he she's a killer she's a baby killer like some women get that she they're criminals they're this they're that they're convicts or and all of the language allows us to treat folks because how else would you treat a criminal there's things that i can do to a killer that i can't do to somebody's daughter right that i can give myself internal permission to be like well this person did do this or whatever the case may be if i see them as such and all of the the stereotypes that may come with some of these labels, then we give ourselves permission to, to accept the death penalty, to to separate kids from their families, to to not feel bad about the fact that folks don't have an equal right and access to a lot of the things that we've come to value, not because of <laughs> which we come to value it, not because some of us, some of us were given, some of it we had to earn. Legal Tender is made by Yahoo Finance at our studios and homes in New York City. This episode was written and hosted by me, Adriana Belmonte. Illegal Tender was created, edited, and produced by Alex Sugg. Thank you to Johnny Perez and Marcus Jarvis for sharing your stories with us. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review it for the show. Until next time, thank you for listening to Illegal Tender.